Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Kimberly Mayer to tell us all about her book titled The Biopolitics of Care in Second World War Britain, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. This is a fascinating book, to be honest, um, that looks at something we might have seen a lot of images of, um, heard about in history, seen in films, etc., but probably never thought about. And as Kim demonstrates in this book, there's a lot to think about in terms of how the government communicated instructions for care, how wartime rumors influenced people's perceptions and behaviors, um, and understanding a lot of the politics in this. You know, it's not just as simple as, okay, well, everyone's got dogs. What do you do about it? Hang on a second. If we're thinking about evacuations, if we're thinking about bombings, if we're thinking about the role of government in people's private lives, suddenly owning a dog, for example, has a whole lot else going on. So obviously, I'm not the expert on it. But Kim, I'm so pleased that you are here to tell us all about it. Oh, thank you, Miranda. Thank you so much for having me and for that very warm introduction. (laughs) I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here. But before we get into the book itself, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Lethbridge. That's in Western Canada. And my research is often historical and generally contends with communication, which I uh, define rather broadly. Uh, my previous book was about the communications of West German urban guerrillas in the 1970s and the ways that history that that, that, that history was taken up in artistic forms uh, for several decades afterwards. Um, in terms of this book, um, why I decided to write it? Uh, well, um, it was it, it was. Uh, I think like most books, I don't know if everybody admits to this, <laughs> but um, or whether it's just me, but um, it was a series of uh, what I would call serendipitous accidents in a way, uh, uh, definitely a process of so never one decision. Uh, it started... Uh, uh, I won't say it started with birth, my birth, but but, but it did start when I was a, a student and I read a chapter in a book by Ben Highmore that uh, was written about mass observation. And I was so intrigued by that chapter that several years later, I made my way to Brighton just to see the archive for myself. And I had no plans at that time. I certainly had no thoughts of writing about the Second World War, evacuation, rumors, or anything like that. Um, and if it's all right, I should probably just just give a little bit, like for those who are not familiar with what mass observation is. Uh, it was a social movement uh, that started in 1937 um, that involved uh, social research into everyday life conducted by ordinary people, mostly volunteers uh, who were not trained at all in the social sciences, who were uh, who aimed to study themselves, their neighbors, and their communities. And uh, and so the documents that I found in the Mass Observation Archive took me on this really winding path, uh, which the questions or problems that were brought together in the book accumulated over, over time. Uh, the very first trip I took to the archive was like purely exploratory, motivated by curiosity. And I began re- just by requesting... Uh, boxes with the most intriguing titles. So that's really how it started. And the the I think like maybe the second or third box I looked at was Dogs in Wartime because I thought when I saw that title, I, I thought, what is this? <laughs> and um, and it included material concerning how to calm historic, hysterical dogs uh, upset by air raid warnings to how to protect your dog from gas attacks, which, you know, just reading that stuff makes you go, oh, you know. <laughs> and um, But it mostly contained interviews uh, conducted by uh, mass observation participants, interviews with people about dogs, and, and they covered a range of things like 
whether it's right to have a dog in London during the war or, or questions like, uh, does your dog feel, how does your dog feel when you go into the air raid shelter without them? And at the time, I, I didn't know that these interviews were undertaken as part of a market research contract, but I was completely fascinated by both the questions and the answers. So um, many of those answers startled me, actually, because talking about dogs seemed to provide a way for many people to talk implicitly about what kind of life they thought was a worthy life, a life that's useful, worth saving, or what we might call a good life. So people could say things about dogs that they might not say about people, even if they were privately or unconsciously grappling with these questions in a time of emergency and scarcity. So stumbling across this box of old papers was really a, a catalyst for the book. And then Mass Observation's extensive documentation of wartime rumor, rumors provided another window into the shifting concerns of the time. Uh, so, And then the whole idea of care as a central concern for the book really came much later when I just started really realizing how much care as an attitude and as an organizing relation was actually a central force on the British home front residing in all the core aspects uh, of the war that, you know, on the one hand can be has been characterized warmly in terms of the people's war um, or not so warmly in terms of division or abandonment. And I also was kind of struck by the way in which, you know, uh, looking at the National Archives, uh, different ministries and, and different ministry documents and so forth, realizing how much care and uncertainty was felt by, um, you know, the the, the anonymous-seeming uh bureaucrats and clerks who had to deal with inquiries. So uh, so care just kind of came out as like, this is all about care, all sorts of different kinds of care in different directions. Thank you for explaining those different components that brought this book together. I think it's maybe every at least historians, dream to find a cool archive, wander into it, and just start requesting the coolest sounding boxes. <laughs> so that's a very satisfying origin story um, on that front. And I'm not surprised that kind of the key questions and things sort of accumulated through that investigation. And I'm wondering, before we get further into mass observation and some of the kind of answers you came up with, you could take us through what some of those key questions are that you're investigating through this process? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I, I do have a, a habit of asking like way too many questions maybe when I'm writing something. But, uh, but though in terms of the uh, overarching ones, uh, you know, as I said, my study made me question care, um, which is a word I talk about early on, I think, uh, in the book has a word I really like. Um, but it made me question care as something that could be weaponized um, against perceived threats uh, to the kinds of security towards which civil defense aims. So the, the, the broadest question that underlies the book is, how can the assignment of security responsibilities to ordinary people doing routine things like cooking, dog walking, and caring for children be understood in relation to the concerns of modern nation states focused on the protection of the population? And then with respect to my consideration of mass observations use and contestation of the logics of care that organized civil defense. I was I was asking uh, generally, in what ways did formal and informal civil defense imperatives of care communicate or contest expectations for good wartime citizens or seem to be good wartime citizens and distinguish them from others? And what were the implications of, of shifting social expectations for those whose dependency was perceived to be inconsistent with those uh, moral obligations of civil defense? And it's just sort of uh, mass observation, uh, both participated in ways that allowed me to kind of get at some of those things and, um, and also allowed me to sort of see um, that those things. Hmm. Lots of questions and some very interesting ones. Um, so I'd love to go get in a little bit more to mass observation, obviously, because you've mentioned it a bit already and I think a very helpful foundation. Um, but kind of simply existing as a very cool archive 
is one of the roles that it plays in the book, but not really the only one. So can you tell us a bit more about mass observation and how you use it and investigate it in the book? Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, on the one hand, uh, you know, as you say, uh, you know, it is a mass observation gave us a very cool archive. So um, it was a central source for my book because because in deploying volunteers all over Britain to observe the social habits of people, um, it responded to a, a largely unrecognized knowledge gap uh, arising from a class divided and vast social and cultural fabric where, uh, you know, some forms of talk or, or talk that, that occurred in certain venues, such as the pub or the kitchen, didn't really seem to have a place uh, in official discourse. In this way, as a social research organization, uh, Mass Observation produced an extensive archive of astonishing breadth, uh, attending to all sorts of things, um, superstition, dance hall crazes, smoking habits, trust in news, public opinion, and racism, on and on. It provided exactly the kinds of empirical source material for the book that one of its founders, Tom Harrison, had hoped it would give to historians of the future. And that's a window into everyday lives left out of what counted then as official sources. But then on the other hand, I also uh, treat mass observation as a central agent in my book because um, as a participatory social movement, it sought to contribute to social transformation uh, in particular um, in the making of a more dynamic, decentered, and democratized public sphere. So mass observation aimed to use the, the material it collected to influence social policy. And in the book, I examine uh, this influence, uh, which was quite critical of the kind of care that state actors and institutions gave through civil defense on the home front. And, and, and at times it explicitly urged for uh, what I would consider a more compassionate form of governance. Hmm. Which was intriguing to think about, especially as you said, the kind of bureaucrats that you don't think of as being compassionate necessarily or kind of having care as their first job. Um, and yet there is a lot of it in the investigation. So what kind of care did official plans have when we're looking at civilian behavior on the home front during World War II? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And I, and I, I will, uh, before going into that, I, I will just sort of say that, yeah, like, I think what's interesting when you actually get into the ministry documents, particularly their inter, interdepartmental, like when they're writing to each other, different, different bureaucrats and clerks and so forth, you can really see that kind, the way in which people in these jobs do very much care. Um, you could see a lot, I could see a lot of anxiety and worry and wonder whether they were doing the right thing in certain situations. So that was a really interesting thing that I, I'd like to return to at some point. Um, but, but all of this gets couched in policy and, um, and institutional structures that have their ways of, of, of doing things, right? And of course, they're dealing with large groups of people. So, um, be, since policy-driven care is 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 organized um, on such a broad macro scale level, um, uh, I talk about it as biopolitical care um, because it's 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 um, targeting its its care. Uh, to things such as populations or the population, the nation, um, things like that as the targets of care or protection. And the challenge with this is that, as mass observation often noted, uh, calling such schemes, such as the evacuation schemes, uh, paper plans, um, overarching forms of care fail to take into account the particularities of individ the individual lives that, that, it, alter that, that it alters or that they alter, um, as it aims to, you know, at, at the same time that it aims to protect. So it, it may um, do so to save life, yes, but the life that it aims to save uh, is that of a population or the strength or spirit of a nation. And individuals can be lost uh, or harmed by this form of care. I'm in, really indebted to uh, 
Lisa Stevenson's book, Life Beside Itself, for giving some language around the distinction between different forms of care, because Stevenson argues that care is increasingly defined and enacted in biopolitical terms as anonymous, bureaucratic, colonial. Uh, These are all very biopolitical forms of care because they're oriented rather indifferently, even when they're passionate. Um, towards a population or even an ideal. And it's interesting because Stevenson argues that biopolitical logics of care are more and more permeating even our sense of care as as individuals in our more intimate lives. Um, But she juxtaposes biopolitical care with everyday forms of care that are attuned to personalized bonds um, and particular circumstances and meanings uh, for members of certain social groups. But she admits that personalized forms of care are uncertain. Uh, the, the outcomes of them are going to be uncertain. Uh, and they involve an awful lot of listening and refusing the notion that your care will fix or cure others. And uh, this kind of care can't be traced fully in advance in the way that um, policy is driven to do if that makes sense. (laughs) Uh Yeah, no, it does. Um, Thinking about the kind of kinds of care and and also the complications of it, um, I was interested in the book, you talk about a collaboration between mass observation and the Ministry of Information, which I was somewhat surprised to see. Um, And then even more intrigued when you describe it in the book as, quote, an ambivalent form of care. Can you tell us about this? Uh, yes, um, yes. So uh, I might go on a bit of a windy road here, but uh, uh, yeah. So uh, and 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 uh, it isn't surprising that you were surprised about this collaboration with the Ministry of Information, and you know, it's it, because it was something that was that mass observation had a kind of, and both mass observation and the ministry. Uh, really wanted to keep this uh, this collaboration under wraps. Um, neither one felt that it was in their best interest for uh, the public or even um, certain members of government to know that this collaboration was going on. And in particular, Mass Observation was actually working with home intelligence. This actually caused some internal conflicts um, and is largely the reason why um, Charles Madge left uh, Mass Observation. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that I I would never have said before <laughs> doing this research um, that I do say in the book is that um, Ministry of Information surveillance of and attempts to shape civilian morale um, was was actually a way of exercising care towards the population of the nation, and I wouldn't normally <laughs> I wouldn't normally consider surveillance to be a form of care, but I, I think that because I also kind of have really really rethought care in this book, like care can be violence, but care even when it comes from um, attachments, affection. Um, you know, um, a, a desire to preserve, right? That it, it can have um, negative um, impacts. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's just, it's very complicated. Um, but in a war in which violence uh, would be waged on civilian homes, primarily through air, uh, air raids, um, government understood morale as like a feeling of, of, um, efficacy to withstand these, right? To perform these this wide range of tasks aligned with national duty, right? Putting out bombs, making good use of vegetable peels. And mass observation took contracts with, you know, uh, the ministry's home intelligence division to track civilian morale. And they made policy recommendations on the basis of what they gathered. And while government policy was very much oriented towards abstraction, um, you know, not taking into consideration class differences and so forth. Mass observation sought to, I don't know, personalize might be too strong of a word, but, but to, um, but, you know, to make that care um, that was given to civilians more, uh, more closely oriented to their, to their experience and circumstances. Um, So, uh, so I was following from Michel Foucault's observation that modern institutional forms of examination, such as 
secularized forms of confession that offer access to private thoughts, feelings, and motivations, which is really what mass observation was trying to get at, um, are put to work to produce knowledge about individuals and inform techniques of correction on conduct and belief or whatever that are applied to individuals for the supposed greater good. And so um, I can, so following Foucault here, I, I identify the form of care that mass observations intelligence work and their policy recommendations uh, the, the recommendations they advocated as pastoral in character, drawing upon the shepherd flock metaphor and Foucault, that Foucault discussed in some of his lectures in the 70s. And pastoral power in the context of mass observations war work involves both watching over and gently guiding civilian feeling. And this approach stands in in, in a sense, in one sense, stands in sharp contrast with the more overarching policing of public feeling that government was engaging with by, for instance, withholding information from the public via informal control over the news or charging people for spreading despondency through rumors, through, for example, the silent column campaign. Um, Mass observations, recommendations to officials push for more intimate and less bureaucratic forms of care towards the specific and different realities that citizens faced in their everyday lives and urged government to bring the people into their confidence to understand and respond to things like the superstitions that uh, some people, some groups of people hold about food um, when asking them to change their diets or to draw upon popular music and entertainment to align civilians with needed change in habits, to be aware of and respond to how women's leisure had changed during the war and so forth. And so I say that the approach to care that mass observation advocated was ambivalent because even though it was, it like it aimed for more individualized and perhaps more compassionate means to encourage civilians to recognize themselves as their own wardens, if you will, um, dedicated to the population, the people's war, um, or, or whatever. It, 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 it's, uh, it still, it still was doing, um, it still was doing the same. It was still kind of operating under, under that same logic um, but it was a kinder, gentle, more gentle way of doing it, um, which, yeah, I mean, mm. there's no there's no full right answer of how to how to do policy, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, or civil defense, but uh, yeah, but trying to attune, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that character characterization makes a lot of sense with that explanation and it's interesting to sort of hear about the different ways that the ministry and mass observation both were really focused on morale but kind of understood it slightly differently and did different things with it um and obviously i've mentioned rumors at the beginning and you've now brought it up so i'd love to get into rumors if we can because i really appreciated that that's something both mass observation took really seriously and you took really seriously right that these are it's important to understand what stories people are telling, whether or not they're actually super factual, that the, the fact that people are telling them is interesting and tells us things. So one of the aspects that you look at, and I think makes a lot of sense to examine, is this evacuation aspect of people getting out of the cities, being sent out of the cities to the countryside. That's obviously a huge change for everyone involved. The people going, the people now hosting these strangers... And unsurprisingly, there were a lot of stories and rumors, some of which were remarkably consistent across different places. What do you think that these different stories and rumors around kind of why people are evacuating, who's evacuating, what it's like to host an evacuee, all sorts of things about this experience. What were all these stories and rumors actually about and what were they revealing? Yeah, um, well... Uh, you know, it's you know, rumors a a, a very interesting um, form of communication, um, and you know, it's particularly uh, during the war, uh, it was considered a threat to national security. But I think that historically, I think still to a degree, uh, rumor, even though it's not studied under that name so much. Um, is is considered a possible precursor to things like riots, um, 
But rumors can actually allow people collaboratively to work through circumstances that are unclear to them, um, that seem ambiguous. Uh, It's also, rumors also allow people to express emotions concerning a state of affairs that that seems uncertain or unknown. Um, And... uh, and rumors also have a very strange way of passing. Um, so uh, if a rumor seems to resonate very strongly with cultural concerns, um, it, can, uh, it can just appear out of, like, uh, you know, to seem to appear out of nowhere in another place, another context, and even another historical time with key details changed to give it a local resonance or a specific significance. Um, so um, what's really interesting about mass observation, um, as, you, as you noted, Miranda, like mass observation was fascinated with rumors and it gave a lot of, um, gave an, an awful lot of attention to uh, documenting them in different places uh, during the war. And uh, their documentation of rumors, if you, you know, after reading many, many, many of them, uh, shows that there were salient rumors or elements uh, or elements of them that can be seen repeated across space. Uh, But I really felt that the meaning of the rumor, um, you know, did change in, in tenor, like at some of them, it, when I was able to see them some, sometimes like that they looked the, like, oh, this is the same one, but it's different. And being, it's got different, just some little changes, um, but it's, it's, it's appeared somewhere else. Right. Um, but, uh, but the, so the meeting changes according to the context of its utterance and it, and it also, and it also can, and also who, you know, who the speaker and the speaker and the audience uh, you know who they are. It also can change the the intonation of it. But um, at the very start of the war, uh, evacuation rumors, which which were they like they were very sensational. They described evacuees uh, as unhousable or animalistic, and, and these spread so quickly um, that uh, that they they arrived in reception areas uh, before the before the evacuees arrived on the trains in some cases um, and they shared as you as you mentioned uh, many elements uh, even you know what we might consider characters or tropes um, describing for example evacuated mothers as um, un, you know irresponsible ungrateful um, and children as verminous and destructive to property. Uh, these were the ones that were the most salient and enjoyed the widest circulation. But there were also negative rumors that um, that were about hosts from an evacuee perspective, but these did not spread at all to the same extent. Uh, many of the rumors um, in the first eight months of the war before bombing really became uh, uh, more of a part of uh, became a part of everyday life really during the Blitz uh, later then. Um, but in the, the, the first eight months of the war, they seemed to provide a, a, a conduit to express concerns about physical and cultural contagion. Um, so like the idea that you might pick up um, some kind of disease from, uh, from an, ev- an evacuee, um, even, um, even uh, concerns about venereal disease uh, were believed that you could pick something like this up from sharing a washroom. Um, and, uh, and there was all sorts of concern around, you know, various types of um, physical contamination of bedding and, you know, um, furniture and so forth. Um, but also an idea of cultural contagion, though, for the fear of, of uh, poor manners, uh, bad language, um, uh, lack of morality and so forth. Um, but you also see uh, a lot of evidence that um, concern about financial burden uh, and the overturning of home life uh, were expressed in these in these early rumors. Uh, but they also reveal a lot of misunderstandings across differences of social class, religion, social geography, and so forth. So, like, while looking at, like, a number of them shows uh, a really complicated picture than that provided in 
those that were most widely spread. And people, it does show that people did hold multiple and dynamic perspectives on evacuation, on its necessity, its success, its role in, de- in civil defense. And uh, yeah, so the rumor is an interesting mode of communication because I, I, on the one hand, it, 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 you know, it, it does have its dangers, but it played an, a significant role in helping people to promote, negotiate, and contest acceptable and expected conduct and social norms during the upheavals of wartime and the uncertainties of conduct that arose from those rapid, rapid changes. And so I think sometimes um, spreading rumors uh, was an indirect way of, of, of asking your neighbor what's appropriate. Mm. How then do these rumors and stories, especially around evacuation, influence the biopolitics of care more broadly? Well, um, well, biopol- biopolitical care, um, I sort of, I've described sort of as an anonymous, anonymous form of care that aims to protect the life of the population at a, a grand scale or, or protect um, national security or some kind of abstraction. Um, and it's mobilized through, um, often through institutional forms of action. In this case, through evacuation as a form of social civil defense um, in, in the context of aerial bombing as a threat. Um, a significant portion of the expectations and norms that rumors negotiated uh, highlighted that many people felt that they were not or or perhaps would not be cared for. And I think this is true, not just for evacuees, but also for hosts. Uh, and policymakers and organizations operating on a broad scale, of course, have a difficult time attending to the needs of real beings in their actual experiences. Um, at the time, the rumors at the start of the war also presented the most vulnerable social classes as an internal threat to the life of the population. Uh, And this had paradoxical effects. Uh, The most notable being the remarkable ways in which a nation that was under like bombing uh, and, uh, and, and the, a real sense of threat of invasion. Um, And and so under all of these external threats that, um, are terrifying and intri- seemingly intractable. Uh, the, there was this uh, this co- this serious set of conversations and actions that emerged, um, uh, you know, working towards the formation of, of social wel- welfare policy, uh, which I found I found very su- surprising, uh, just how uh, how much space that that took up during this. Uh, during during a time when um, everyone was mobilizing to, uh, you know, to defend against this external threat, um, but that so much work was uh, internally organized at that time. But um, care mobilized in this work towards uh, the social welfare state that characterized the post-war period uh, you know, uh, up until Thatcher, I guess. Um, so care mobilized that, but that care was uh, complicated. Um, it was one of wanting to fight poverty, for example, which evacuation had made much more evident. But it was also a kind of care that in some contexts could be willing to do so by fighting, eradicating, or leaving exposed some of the most vulnerable groups in the society who were forced into that very poverty by a vastly uneven social structure. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think, as you said, right, it's fascinating to understand what all of this is doing and how people are negotiating these questions. Um, But let's complicate it, because obviously it's not complicated enough already, and bring into uh, the discussion something we've both mentioned earlier, one of the things that I found fascinating just even reading the blurb of the book and obviously started you off in the archives. Let's talk about dogs and cats. Um, not just humans, obviously, in terms of who needs to be cared and what that cared for and what that looks like. How and why were dogs and cats involved in this? And why were they treated differently in this lens of the biopolitics of care? 
Okay, yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a great question and one that I'll have to rein myself in on um, because there's so many different ways. And sometimes, yeah, it, it, there's so many contradictions. Uh, one key difference uh, that, you know, really stands out to me um, is the extent to which cats and dogs were understood, especially by emergency planners uh, early on, to be useful or essential workers in hot zones of the war, whether that be on the home front or not. And um, so some kinds of cats um, uh, identified in, uh, in some official documents as uh, warehouse type or something like that, something along those lines, um, were considered useful in managing other animals or other entities that were considered pests and threats. And so they were understood, so like, for example, rats, uh, that, you know, the idea that cats were essential in controlling rat populations, especially if an, uh, a neighborhood uh, or district had to be evacuated, that cats were essential workers to stay behind. Um, and and this, this appears in documents where um, it's being kind of divided out who stays, who goes in these situations. Um, and so these cats... Um, were understood as, as being independent enough to be left behind in an evacuation and also important enough to be left behind, which is, which just seems like also a contradiction because their lives are at risk, but, um, but important enough to be left behind in an evacuation to do this work for the war effort, even as local populations, uh, large portions of them, not, you know, obviously leaving behind other essential workers, but even, um, in this case, there was discussion about how you could still pull out animal wel- welfare work um, in in the case of leaving cats behind to do this work to uh, protect, um, you know, foodstuffs and things uh, and areas from being overrun with rats uh, if everyone or most people were gone. So the perceived utility um, is, is, is utility was a big it, utility plays a large role in 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 um, understanding what was going on with uh, animals. Um, uh, the perceived utility of dogs was, uh, was much more complicated and I haven't really dealt with all of everything with cats either, but, um, but dogs were really complicated, uh, in the same context where cats were described as essential workers in areas under evacuation, dogs were actually feared. Um, so there was this worry that dogs would themselves become a threat to the population and the war effort itself. If they were to lose their human families, become lost in evacuation, or even outside of that context, if they were to become anxious uh, in a bombing situation. So there was also some fear about dogs, even um, in other places, uh, even dogs still with their families. The idea that anxious dogs not 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 able to respond well to uh the sounds of air raids or bombs that they could become a serious threat uh not only to people but uh, ordinary people but also to um emergency responders so early in the war there were these conflicting messages about the moral status of killing one's companion animals whether it was patriotic or humane to keep them during the war And at the same time that many cats and dogs were indeed put down at the start of the war and that dogs in particular were perceived as potential threats, dogs were also valorized um, when they were understood to be working dogs. So uh, whether, whether they worked on farms or in the military, as many dogs did, non-working dogs, which were often referred to in public discourse as lazy, lazy dogs, um, many suggested they should be sacrificed or um, sacrificed to avoid depleting the food supply. And people who kept non-working dogs were often, um, often characterized as selfish uh, and not patriotic. Uh, animal advocacy groups and mass observation quite explicitly uh, seemed to pick up on this discourse of utility and stressed the importance of companion animals, uh, arguing that they were essential for morale, which was, um, which is probably uh, quite 
accurate in a lot of cases, uh, but it was also a very um, interesting uh, discursive move, which I think was uh, effective in a lot of cases. Uh, and then there's quite a quite a uh, quite a bit more to 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 the um, different treatments or contradictory understandings of cats and dogs, but uh, those are some examples. Yeah, thank you for taking us through that. Um, obviously, I think this is a good point to mention that the book has a lot of more detail. <laughs> um, we're only able to kind of touch on some of these topics, but I think that gives us a good sense. Um, especially that last point, the idea of kind of contradictory and complex, because you talk about in the book that there's not just sort of one way of thinking about this or that people were thinking about this. And in fact, there were multiple different hierarchies that were going on and there'd be kind of, here's this hierarchy of how we're going to, who's going to be prioritized and how, oh, wait, then something happens. Now we're going to change that. Oh, but we also have to factor this in. So could you sort of take us through some of those, maybe a, a few examples of those hierarchies and then how they get changed and broken up and reordered as events develop? Right, right. Yes. Um, in the, in the, uh, I'll see what I can do on that. Um, uh, yeah, in the book, I try to attend to the ways that the lives of, of in particular evacuees and animals um, were differentially elevated and lowered in response to the threats posed to the life of the nation during the war. And in doing so, I was, I was drawing from Mel Y. Chen, uh, who d- does some interventions into the concept of animacy hierarchy, which I'll just briefly uh, try to explain. Um, an animacy hierarchy denotes st- structures, um, and this can be these can be structures of our belief that we might not even be aware of. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be something explicitly stated as, as sometimes was in some of these documents. Um, but it can also just be in our assumptions um, as a, as a group, as a social group or as a society. Um, but that there are these structures that order different forms of life, assigning different value to different lives based upon uh, sometimes unconscious presumptions of relative sentience, uh, agency, and ability. And Chen argues that animacy hierarchies are always undergoing changes because that concept on its own just sort of suggests that, well, you know, um, this group of people um, seem to uh, be given more license or uh, consideration than this group of people. Um, And, you know, as though there's like this more static kind of hierarchy at work in any given society. But these are often, uh, Chen, Chen argues that these are often shifting in different contexts and, um, and over time, and that there can be multiple going on at the same time. Um, so uh, I, I, I was trying to look at how different categories of life were broken up into parts that were assigned different value and had uneven claims to care. Um, and uh, and since they are, since these animacy hierarchies are unstable um, and depend upon perspective and context, uh, there were several hierarchies and they shifted over the course of the war. Um, it's really, it's difficult to go through them systematically, but I can reference briefly a few examples. Um, for instance, early in the war, children evacuated from industrial areas were often compared with animals and insects. And uh, at the same time that the value, at the same time that the value of the working dog was kind of extolled over that of the wealthy uh, uh, non-working lonely woman who was assumed not to be contributing to the war effort. Like you have these really um, strange things that happen in discourse where you'll see direct comparisons between a working dog and a, and a lonely woman. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and actually the lonely woman is also an interesting trope. Um, and, uh, and these, these do, these do, um, I wouldn't say that that necessarily goes that part that, um, goes away, but, uh, but, um, you know, uh, over time, uh, there's less pressure on, uh, you know, the idea of a companion, 
a companion dog that it does, that does not work. Um, they're not vilified in the same way or they're, or the people who keep them or were not vilified in the same way throughout the course of the war. Um, uh, although, um, you see where, for example, I'm going to be, these are very confusing. <laughs> so, um, like for example, uh, you, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to sort of suggest, for example, that um, horses, for at, at, which which were considered very valuable, um, were were sacrificed at a certain point for, as meat for dogs. But these were, and and th- and this was whether or not they were working or the supposedly lazy dogs. So like, so so it's not it doesn't nothing holds um, all the way through if if that makes sense. But uh, those that horse meat. Um, was taken from racehorses, which, so there was like a, there's distinctions between, you know, every category, you know, there's uh, the, the dogs that are working or not working, but then maybe that gets, that distinction gets complicated and there's horses, uh, but then there's racehorses, um, which take a lower rung on, you know, on, on, in terms of um, their, uh, being understood as expendable or not, right? Um, I think uh, a vivid example um, that I started to pick up in civil defense imperatives for the care of homes was the initial assumption in the flood of of sometimes very frightening um, brochures that would come to people's homes telling them how to prepare for war. Uh, and they're very daunting. Like when I was going through them myself, I, I felt very overwhelmed and, and thought, I don't know that I could do this or how do I, so maybe if I try to do this fire, this gas proof, make this gas proof room, assuming I have one to do this with, uh, how would I know that it actually succeeded? Um, you know, so there's very, this, this flood of, a very terrifying, um, uh, instructions, uh, that of course were designed to help people um, survive, and it was a necessity, I guess, to just sort of figure out how to do these things. But um, they assumed um, they assumed clearly a very um, agential audience uh, perceived to be able to do all the things required of them, uh, whether that's to extinguish a bomb or, like I said, gas-proof a room. So later there develops. Um, a, a narrative about certain dwellings, such as tenement housing, and this happens around the time when, um, like around, uh, you know, 41, 42, 43, There's this, 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 uh, where there's more, where all this attention uh, starts to be paid to uh, social, social welfare considerations and uh, initiatives around that. Um, there starts to be a, a narrative that comes into being about tenement housing and um, sort of more insidious dwellings uh, that treats them as active agents that are themselves presented as um, as though they are alive, um, as they are more sentient or having greater capacities than the residents that live in them. So these dwellings came to be presented as a, as a danger to the nation's a genetic inheritance, um, and uh, which of course, which of course cast their residents in this way as well. But there became this question about which of these residents can be saved and which are too far gone. Um, so that's another uh, really fascinating animacy hierarchy that you can sort of see just in the ways that. Um, homes, taking care of the homes, uh, preserving life, and and so forth, um, are discussed over the course of the war. Hmm. Thank you for taking us through some of those examples. Um, It really does, it's fascinating to think about, hang on, okay, so what do you do with a racing horse? How do you think about that, right? All these things that um, do sort of bring out these instinctive responses that tells us quite a lot about how people think about this. Um, In a similar way, I suppose leaving for a moment aside the question of animals, apologies to everyone who's here, mainly for the dogs and the cats. Um, You talk in the book, towards the end of the book, about another aspect of kind of something we might have thought about or there might be some awareness of, but 
there's a lot more nuance that maybe we aren't considering, which is very much the case in the time period you're discussing, right? There's kind of this one narrative that you you discuss about people who live in, quote, slums, right? The working class um, where the houses are not up to maybe the standard that the government um, would want. And there's sort of one way that that is talked about until we go into that wonderful mass observation archive. So can you tell us a bit about the more complex and nuanced views about these people, about the places they live that we can find by adding in mass observation to the discussion? Yes. Um, yeah, so um, because mass observation uh, did, did the kind of research they did, um, it, it, and with varied methods that provided such detail that was unusual at the time, um, you know, uh, and, and at a time in particular when it was largely believed that if you want to know something, you should ask an expert um, or you should ask, uh, the, you know, your MP. Um, now, of course, there's nothing wrong with asking experts or looking at, um, uh, you know, materials that can give you, um, you know, larger views of, of, of what's going on. Uh, but mass observation understood that a lot of things would be missed if you didn't go to the source of your subject. Um, and so it took uh, a wide range of appro- approaches to understanding the lives of individuals and groups and, um, and for the most part, valued the views of those uh, who were studied. Um, and sometimes those, uh, those were participants sometimes in mass observation itself as the project was a project that was about studying ourselves. Um, although um, I think there was, um, I think there's, you know, work that's been done on mass observation shows that, you know, there were, uh, there were a lot of probably more middle class, I know that's not a very accurate category, but uh, participation in mass observation than necessarily in the, you know, the, 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 the working classes or particularly the, the those uh, who were, subject to some of these um, overarching um, narratives that you're referring to. Um, uh, And yeah, I mean, there was a, one of the things that I think was really valuable is the way in which uh, mass observation would, you know, uh, go to people's homes, uh, you know, get people to show them around, uh, show them around, uh, and kind of uh, let them observe uh, their daily activities, how they go about all of the things that you do in a day, um, you know, preparing a meal, doing your laundry, and so forth. And so when, you know, so whether were these discourses of, of um, you know, if, if we we're talking about evacuees being um, unhousable or untrained or something like this, uh you know, which we saw in in the rumors, what wasn't understood was that um, children who didn't eat at tables um, didn't live in homes that had room for a table um, often, right? Because that that was such, the the, the space was so scarce. Um, You know, uh, mass observations uh, kind of looking at, you know, what, what were the what were the acrobatics and um, really difficult logistics that people had to attend to in order to do things that many of us would take for granted uh, today with the infrastructure that we have. And even at the time, many other people would not have understood um, what people would have to do. I mean, uh, perhaps they didn't have um, refrigeration, so that changed what they thought was um a recognizable thing to eat because um, there was this fear of like, you know, fresh chicken, for example, um, from people uh, who were evacuated from uh, from some of the more industrial areas when they were were fed fresh chicken. They thought this was they thought it was dirty. At the same time that their the hosts thought they were dirty, right? Um, and uh, so that's where a lot of the misunderstandings uh, came into play. But mass observation really showed. Uh, just all of the different things that would have to be done and how that accounts for some of the, some of those misunderstandings and those really uh, disparaging and one dimensional narratives that uh, 
really characterize discussions of, of the working classes and particularly the poorest of them. Um, concerning housing um, in a more uh, kind of um, advocacy sense, mass observation, uh, you know, really uh, made an effort to um, make the the case that inquiries into social realities must be undertaken before attending to a problem. And so that whatever you do, whatever, whatever initiatives uh, come into being, that they actually uh, somehow are consistent with or respond to actual ways in which people live. Um, and they also highlighted the ways that everyday life was lived, as I, as I've said. Um, and that, and that, uh, one of the things I really love about the way mass observation, now I'm just gushing, um, the way mass observation kind of uh, did things um, in some contexts is that they really were able to get at uh, the way in which everyday life was lived in um, in, a, in a way in creative ways, um, even in constrained circumstances. And I think one of my favorite uh, examinations that they did. Uh, was uh, the participant observation of the phenomenon of tube dwelling, uh, which continued even after, even as bombing, the bombing threat was receding, um, because um, as many people would would know, um, tube stations had been used as shelters during the night when bombing was more frequent. And this work revealed uh, the creative collaboration and, and even attachment of the families and communities that returned each night to the tube as a way of dealing with the strains of war, but also just those really every those everyday difficulties of living under those uh, constraints. And the other thing, uh, lastly, uh, against the tendency for planners to give priority to plans that, that treat people anonymously. anonymously. Um, mass observation really advocated for, uh, you know, consideration of complex lives of individuals um, in, their, in their bonds, in that sort of everyday form of care that, um, that Stevenson was talking about that I mentioned earlier. Mm. That, in fact, is a nice sort of full circle moment, I think, bringing Stevenson back in. So um, that leaves me only with my final question, which is, this book is done. I'm sure you're glad to have it <laughs> out in the world for people to read. Um, now that it is off your plate, though, is there anything you might be working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact subject that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Uh, yeah, well, I'm... I will say, uh, thank you for asking that, but I will say my intentions are really fragmented between a few different projects right now. Uh, but um, in general, I'm still residing on the tension between care and security, uh, looking at how biopolitical forms of care have, uh, and this isn't as historical, although I, I, I won't be unhistorical necessarily, but I'm kind of looking at how people, uh, biopolitical forms of care um, have left people feeling disaffected uh, more in the present sense or present situation and how this is related to uh, what seems to be uh, more and more coordinated attacks upon public institutions that organize care on large scales. I'm going to sound like one of these people who <laughs> is a big fan of, uh, of uh, institutions um, and I've always been very critical of them. But this book and, um, and really... Um, uh, you know, the last few years has really made me think about, you know, how do you, how do you exercise care um, on grand scales? And, but how do you do it so that people don't feel um, lost in that, right? Um, and so in particular, I'm really interested in how, like in the Canadian context, and, and you, I don't know, I know that there's similar things going on in other, other parts of, of, of the world. Uh, but in, in particular in Canada, uh, we're seeing like the spread of uh, sovereign citizenship discourse and conspiracy theories uh, following discontent and, and I would argue loneliness. Um, arising from safety measures deployed during the pandemic. Um, and what's really interesting about um, this, this discursive 
shift is that it's kind of coming out of a, of a relatively small but very vocal social movement that has that that says it's grassroots and it definitely does have grassroots elements. But it but I also see it serving as an umbrella for a variety of interests connected with various industries such as oil and free market think tanks um, and. Uh, and then on the other side, I'm, I'm also, so you know how I <laughs> I seem to have thrown a whole bunch of things together in this book. I don't know whether that would be connected, but, um, but I'm also interested at the same time in what forms of communication and memory have become silenced by this kind of organized collaboration um, because I, I noticed that expressions of grief or mourning um, are eerily, like, you know, from people who have lost ones to the pandemic are eerily absent from the present public discourse. And I, uh, I'm really interested in exploring, I don't know if I would call it a future history of memory around this that sort of centers upon care, security, and communication. Uh, so I don't know, it's still really unshaped un- at this point. But these are the things that I'm following and thinking about, I guess, right now. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, they sound really interesting. So I'm curious to see what will come of all of these ideas. But of course, in the meantime, while you are thinking, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, The Biopolitics of Care in Second World War Britain, published by Bloomsbury. Kim, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Miranda. I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to speak with you and with your listeners.